when you look at an ecosystem, there are various parts to it. The two major parts to any ecosystem are the living part, which we refer to as the biotic portion of an ecosystem, and then there's the non-living part, which is considered to be called the abiotic uh, function. The two interact. They're not separated from each other. This part here, obviously with population ecology, deals primarily with the living part of an ecosystem, but obviously they are connected. Okay, so that's what we're going to be focusing on here. Uh, you know, why do, we, do certain animals uh, live where they are? Why are they in uh, a particular, uh, why is the population of those animals a particular size? Uh, why does the population fluctuate naturally? Uh, those are the kinds of things, and of course, uh, this is one of the uh, uh, predator-prey relationships with, between wolves and caribou. So, uh, in ecology, we look at the interactions of uh, species and with their environment. Okay, that's what this is all about. Now, population ecology, we're concerned with where are they, and how many of them are they. That's distribution and abundance. And then the study of how these populations change and what causes those changes. Okay? Uh, we're going to do a case study later uh, that will touch on this as well as uh, ecosystems in general. Uh, but this is uh, this is what we're all what ecology is all about. And ecology um, has gotten increasingly complex. Uh, the more we learn, the more we find out that there's stuff we don't know. And to just take any ecosystem and try and describe it completely is impossible because we never know what every single organism that lives there is, uh, nor do we know what they're all doing, what they're all eating. But we can with some that are a little larger, and you can do it with some fairly small organisms, we can look at population sizes and how are they distributed in that area. And then if you do a longitudinal study, you can see how those populations change with time. Okay, so one of the things that's common is with populations is what are called predator-prey cycles. Now, uh, this uh, is a hypothetical in this one. We have uh, some real-world data of uh, the uh, lynx uh, in Canada and uh, snowshoe hares uh, because people have been uh, trapping and collecting pelts in Canada uh, since the 1800s. Hudson Bay Company kept records of you know what they had and, and that and so there's some actual real data. But basically what you'll find is that the peaks and valleys of the two species will be offset so that when there are a lot of prey species, when the rabbit population goes up, uh, okay, the, shortly thereafter, in this case, the fox population will begin to increase because there's lots of food. Okay? But, of course, they're catching rabbits. And so as the foxes prey on rabbits, and of course they don't just eat, uh, one fox doesn't prey on just one rabbit, they have multiple rabbits over time, the population of the rabbits begins to drop just about the same time that the fox population is peaking. And as it goes down, now they don't have enough food. The foxes uh, are not are having difficulty finding enough food. They will either, they may switch to some other prey species, but their population begins to drop. As their population drops, the population of the prey starts to go back up, and you get regular cycles over some period of years. Uh, this is uh, 
not really uh, showing, this, the graph doesn't say what that is, but I'm guessing those are years down on the bottom. Okay, so that you can see that there's a, now this doesn't happen overnight, usually. This takes two or three years for the cycle to work through, and then you, and it's repeated, pretty much as long as it, the ecosystem is not disturbed by an outside force, which could be, well, certainly could be humans, or it could be uh, volcanic activity, it could be a tsunami, I mean, you know, the, all kinds of things can happen that would interfere with this. But assuming it's left to its own devices, you, you see something like this. And so what we're looking at in this first section is on is population ecology. Uh, so what, what governs the growth and sustainability of populations? And, and this isn't just an academic exercise because these same principles apply to us. Uh, you know, we live here on this planet. Uh, we have the same, same issues. Now, we may manipulate things more, but ultimately the same principles will apply to human populations. So let's define first. What's population? Uh, population is a group of individuals of the same species that are occupying a particular area. Now, the area you use in this could be of any, could be of, of varying sizes. Uh, if you were doing rabbits and foxes, it maybe it would be uh, the size of a of a large park, like uh, uh, York River State Park. Something you know, you could use that as an example. Um, in some cases, if you're looking at smaller organisms, it might just be a field uh, that, uh, that you're using as your, uh, as your given area. It's just going to change depending on what your organisms you're looking at, number one, and number two, what are your resources available for, for the research? You know, how, how wide an area can you actually look at? And so the, we refer to the information about these species as the demographics of that particular population. So we're looking at density and dispersion. Uh, in other words, how closely packed are they and, uh, and where are they found within your area? Are they all found in one area? Are they found distributed around? You know, how, how do they do that? Uh, we're looking at the actual size of the population, exactly how many of them are there. Now with humans, we start looking at things called age structure and survivorship curves. And we'll look at those for a moment. And then of course we're interested in how does the population grow? And growth, of course, can be either positive, which is what we normally think of, can also be negative. It's going to be going down, okay? Both of those are related to the growth of the population. So this is what this particular section really deals with. Now, density and dispersion. Um, density is simply the number of individuals per unit area. So you can go out to an area and you can survey that. Not so easy, really, because you have to them all, which with trees, okay, trees, not so bad, I can do that. I can go around, I can pick an area, and I can look at every tree that's there, what species is it, where, you know, how, how are they, you know, that's easy to do. When you have, get to animals, not so easy, because they have a habit of moving around. So then how do you, how do you sample them? And we'll look at some methods of that in just a minute. Um, and then dispersion is, what is the pattern with which they're scattered through the area? And there are three basic dispersion patterns that we look for, random, uniform, and clumped. Okay. Each of them is exemplified by certain organisms based on their interactions with their ecosystem. So clumped. Uh, clumped is probably the most common. Uh, there's a, a map of the, the U.S. at night. Uh, it's just showing lights, but that obviously is a clumped distribution. Now, there are certain areas that there's a lot more than others. It's not uniform by any means. 
that would be an example of, of clump distribution. Um, so the, usually, you know, each species is adapted to a specific set of conditions. And so wherever they find these conditions, you will tend to find more of them. Um, and since resources are never evenly distributed, um, in many cases, you'll end up with this. So, so the individuals tend to cluster where all the resources are that that particular type of organism is. Um, in addition, we have, and with animals, not something we see with plants or fungi, but we have social interactions among animals. And some animals live in herds, okay? Clearly a clumped distribution, okay, when, when you see that. Um, the exact reasons are, well, I mean, we're guessing to some degree, but it's thought that, first of all, it's protection, and there's larger numbers of them, it provides protection. If nothing else, if you're part of a herd, um, and a predator is there, it's going to pick one member of the herd, and if there's more of you, then the chances of you being that one are, are reduced. Okay. One of the ways herds provide protection. Um, they also, uh, mating is another issue. So, this is a clump distribution. Here's another example of a clump distribution. Um, I, I've seen this uh, around here. I'm not this particular caterpillar, but on oak trees that I used to have in my other house. Um, They'd, they'd all be clustered together uh, on certain of the leaves. Probably leaves that had less tannin in them, less uh, fewer chemicals that they really didn't like eating. As plants will do that when they're being preyed on by insects, they will start to produce chemicals in the leaves that are either uh, toxic or at least uh, discourage predation. Now, so that's a clump distribution, okay? The one in this uh, diagram is over a fairly large area. This is over a very small area, but nonetheless, it's a very plump distribution. Okay, next one is uniform distribution. Um, and this is when the uh, individuals are spaced relatively evenly from each other. Now, this is not often found, but here's an example. Um, now, you've all seen penguin stuff by now. You know, there have been endless penguin movies at this point. Um, when they're in the rookery, their distance between them is defined by how far over I can reach and peck at you. And so they will essentially end up in uniform distances among each other based on the fact that they are, it's territorial. Okay, each has their little territory and they will reach out and they will peck at anything that comes into that territory and therefore that drives a relatively uniform distribution of the birds. Uh, now this, uh, while they're laying eggs and while they're raising the, the chicks, this is generally uh, the kind of distribution you could see. Now it's not just animals, of course animals have the option of moving. Uh, but this is another example. This is from the American Southwest. Uh, this is sagebrush in a very dry climate. As you can tell, there's not much else there. Sagebrush sends roots very deep into the soil. And here it's the access to water that limits the number of that can be. And so they are taking the water from a given area. They also secrete chemicals into the soil, which inhibit others. And the result then is a very uniform distribution of the plants. Okay, so uniform does occur. It's not the most common, uh, but it definitely is happening. And then random is another one. Now, for random, uh, the environmental conditions have to be pretty much constant over a wide area, pretty much the same. Uh, the availability of resources needs to be pretty much the same because if the availability of resources is not 
evenly distributed, well, then they won't, then the organisms won't be evenly distributed. Okay, um, and individuals uh, neither attract nor avoid. Now, this is a picture of a rainforest, uh, and I have another another one here. Um, you can pick any species of tree, and you will find other members of that tree, but you have no idea how far away they're going to be. It's completely random. Depends on where the seeds fell, depends on where there was light that you know, allowed them to grow, but you'll end up with a random pattern for any one species. They're not going to be clumped, they're not going to be uniform, they're just going to be randomly placed in your, in your study area. Okay. Uh, and so this is a, a random type of distribution. So generally, most populations will be found in one of these three, three types of distributions, whether it be uniform or random or clumped. Okay. Uh, and these are just some other examples. This is uh, uniform, obviously clumped. Fish school, schools of fish are clearly that's clump distribution. Spiders uh, tend to be more random. It's that kind. All right, now, so that takes care of one item that we would like to know about our population. How, how what is the dispersion? How, where are they found in that area? The next thing we would like to know is. Okay, well, how many of them are there? This is a little more difficult, okay? Now, um, the most accurate way of determining this is to go into your study area and actually count every single organism of a particular species. That's not very often feasible, okay? I mean, it's ideal, that's what you'd like, but it's pretty rare that you are able to do that, particularly with animals. With plants, you have a little more ability to do that uh, but animals, um, so the ne next thing you can do is you can sample the area. There's a number of ways of sampling, and we'll take a look at, at some of these here. Um, this is, that's for, okay, before we talk about capture and recapture, um, let's uh, just talk a little bit about how I would sample an area for plants. Uh, several years ago, we taught a wetlands course during the summer, and we had to sample areas and wetlands. And so what we did is, uh, there's a number of ways to do this. You can set up a grid system. Uh, you've done that lab already. Have you done that lab uh, with the, the, uh, the beans on the, no, you haven't done that yet, okay. You set up a grid system. So you mark out square, usually square meters, and you actually put in little stakes at the corners and then you connect the stakes over a wide area with a string or something like that. And you have divided it into very specific areas. You number them on a, on a sheet of paper, and then you use a random number generator to decide which of them are we gonna look at. Well, you're not gonna look at all of them. You don't have time for that. And you use a random number generator, it spits out a number, you go to that particular quadrat, is what we refer to those, and you count every single thing in that quadrant. Okay, then you do the uh, random number again, it sends you off to some other random uh, quadrat. You do the same thing, you count every single thing that's in that quadrat. And you do that for a number of those, usually five or six. Uh, and then you use that as your sampling method. And you uh, say, okay, this is what we found, and this is a random count, and therefore that should be approximately uh, representative of the entire area. Now, this has its faults because there might be some plant that's, uh, that's found in just one little area. Maybe there's an area that's a little wetter. 
and it's only found, and if your sampling number doesn't come up with that quadrat, you're never going to see that plant. Okay, but this is one method. This is a method you're going to use in lab. Okay, uh, okay, to to uh, do that. So that's one method. So that's a sampling method. It has to be random, and then from that, you, and the number of uh, samples you take, you can calculate the probability that your sample represents the area, and so on. You do that sort of thing. Okay. Another method is called capture recapture. This is what generally done with animals because they're not going to be in the same place. Okay, they're moving around, and so what you do is you, uh, and this is uh, commonly used with rodents, um, and sometimes larger animals. Uh, it could be used with insects. I've seen people use this on on butterflies, on spiders. Uh, I mean, there are other ways you you know, but basically you capture some number, you mark them so that you know they've been captured, and then you release them. Okay. Then sometime later you come back and you capture a second sample. Now, assuming they're moving about relatively randomly, then you count the number of marked individuals that are in your second sample, and you can use that to estimate the total population. Okay. Um, and this is called a capture-recapture method. So here's a, uh, and you don't need to get into all of the uh, equations here, but your estimate of the population size, this is the M that here is the total number of animals captured and marked. C is the total number captured for the second time. And then R is the number that were captured on the first visit that were captured again on the second one. And this gives you an estimate of what your total population is. And obviously you can do this more than one time and you can refine your, your estimate. Okay, this is a capture, capture, you mark them, you recapture. It's commonly used with rodents. Uh, you put out traps, you know, live trapping, and you, you catch them, you mark them, release them, and then sometime later you go back and catch again. Now, there are some problems with this. Um, if you do this too often, you can't do it too many times because the animals will learn. Okay, they'll do one of two things. Either they'll learn to avoid your traps, that's always a possibility, uh, or they may come to, uh, usually you bait the traps, and after they've been released a couple of times, they do learn the fact that this is not dangerous, I can go in here and get a free meal, and then you're going to let me go. And they, in fact, animals will learn that. My, my wife did a, a capture-recapture type thing uh, with turtles over at Waller Mill as part of her uh, master's thesis. And there was one turtle that was very identifiable. She caught almost every time. Obviously, that turtle had figured out that this was free food and no harm was going to come to them. And they went right back in the trap every time. Uh, so th those are the kinds of things that you have to deal with because animals are not completely, you know, they, they learn. Uh, and so when you do a mark, uh, a capture, a mark, recapture, that can mess up your data a little, you know, to some degree. But this is the basic idea behind it. So, uh, behind what you do. Now, the assumption here are that the marking of the animal does not affect their, how often they may be, they may die. In other words, the marking is not something that's going to attract predators so that your marked animals are more likely to be, be caught and eaten. That's a problem. Uh, that can be true of insects. It can be true of, of rodents. Uh, probably not true as you get to larger animals. Uh, 
And again, marking has no effect on the likelihood of being captured. And as I said, as they learn, uh, that may no longer be a valid assumption. So you have to, you can only recapture probably once, maybe twice. And after that, you start to get into other issues. And then lastly, you're assuming that nobody's been entering or leaving the population. Okay, emigrating or immigrating, because you don't know that that would change the numbers of the population. You know, you start the, the process of doing this, and for some reason, a lot of them emigrate out of the area into surrounding area, and you come back and you mark, you capture again, but you've got a much smaller population the second time, and so then your numbers are not going to be very accurate. So these, these are the assumptions that are made when you're doing that. It's a, not an easy thing to do, okay, but you don't have a lot of options. These are some examples. You know, bird banding is an example. We, uh, we do that all the time. Uh, crabs have been, these kinds of studies have been done with uh, blue crabs uh, to try to get an idea of what the population really is uh, in an area. We do, I know that VIMS does uh, random trawls in certain areas to, to get an idea of what the populations are in those areas and then tries to estimate, uh, you know, okay, in the larger area what the population would be. Uh, Larger animals often are collared with a number on it so they can be easily identified again. And so as they move around, you can, you can you know, a pair of binoculars can look out there and say, well, there's that one and there's that one. And, you know, you can keep track of them. And even down to butterflies can be marked. Does any of the bands they ever put on, like, for the crab, is that restrict its growth? Uh, no, because they won't stay on that long. They're meant uh, to, uh, to rot off fairly quickly within a, probably a year. So, but the other thing is that when they, uh, when they molt, you'll lose the band. Remember, they molt periodically. So when they molt, the band will then be lost at that point. So like on that you'll probably be doing it within a matter of days or weeks. Uh, and of course, they, they're gonna molt, uh, they may molt several times during the, summer, during the year, depending on how much, what food availability is. When they're real little, they molt more frequently. As they get larger, they don't molt quite so often. Yeah, and molting is a good deal. Well, depends on who's viewpoint, because that's where you get soft shells from. They're molting, or they have molted, and their new shell hasn't hardened yet. Interesting, though, that uh, when we have, you know, obviously, you can't eat the hard shell. Uh, if you've ever picked crabs, you know that. Really hard uh, in some places, uh, but when they're soft, uh, you just fry up the whole thing and keep the entire crab. They're more expensive when they're soft too. Right? Yes, because you're looking at a limited uh, limited number at any one time. You have to catch them just as they're molting. They're called uh, peelers at that point because they're they're molting, they're losing, and they're usually kept separately from the others until they have finished molting, and then they're sold to market. So it's a little more intensive, you know, manpower intensive to do, and there's only going to be a certain number at any given time. So yes, they're much more expensive. If you've never had one, try one sometime. Just see what it's like. Usually, a, uh, when I've had, I have a couple times, uh, usually a sandwich. So put them in a sandwich, you eat the whole thing. Because the, because the, the uh, outside uh, skeleton is just soft. Fry them up and eat them. Okay. 
But no, so when they molt, that would all that would all disappear. Often, when this kind of thing is done, you're also asking that crabbers, if they if they catch this one, that they take the, the tag off and send it to them with the information about where they caught it. And that sort of thing. That, that's another way of sampling. Remember, like a little bounty on your tags. Yeah. And sometimes people will just do it for because they well, you have a vested interest in the crab population if you're if you're a waterman. One of the issues with the underwater vegetation, you may hear him talk about submerged underwater vegetation SUV uh, that has declined considerably in the bay. And the reason uh, that's so concerned is that that underwater vegetation is where the, the newly hatched crabs and fish hang out for protection. And as you have less and less of that underwater vegetation, then you have obviously less place for them to hide. And that is, uh, is driven, how much of the underwater vegetation you have is driven by nutrient availability. And we contribute to that, the runoff from farms, extra nitrogen, extra uh, phosphorus causes algal blooms, which then blocks light from the underwater vegetation. And then the underwater vegetation doesn't do well. I mean, it's all connected. <coughs> all right, now, population size, of course, is, is not static. It's going to change over time, depending on conditions. Uh, and so we look at, uh, so increases are basically births plus immigration. Then births is kind of a, you know, it, obviously uh, crabs don't, aren't born, they, they hatch. But you know, you know what, we're, what we mean by that. Uh, births plus immigration. And then a decrease is caused by deaths for any reason, plus immigration, those that leave the population. Now, uh, ideally, uh, the, if the conditions don't change so, uh, significantly, your population should enter a stable period where the number of deaths and the number of births would be roughly equal and the population size would not change. Now, in the natural world, um, immigration is a major uh, thing to maintain a population stability. Uh, there are many species, when the young get old enough, they are literally chased out of the territory by the parents. Beavers are like that. You know, okay, we grew you up. Go find your own pond, okay. and that's how that's part of how they maintain stability. You, know, you, you don't get so many of them that they, you can't you can't support individuals. That is not that uncommon. Many, many animals are like that. Many predators are like that. Uh, bear cubs stay with mom often for a year. Uh, next time mom gives birth, they're not wanted around anymore. And they will literally drive them away because they just can't have them. Uh, deer, not so much like that. Deer are pretty much on their own by fall. So any fawns uh, being born here, I don't know. I haven't seen any. Well, you wouldn't normally see the fawns, not for a little while. But uh, by fall, they're going to be on their own. They may hang around with mom for over the winter, but then so long. They're on your own. So emigration is a common way to maintain uh, animal uh, stability. Now, plants obviously don't emigrate in that sense. Trees don't get up and walk over to another area. Uh, that's not an option for them. And so you have different types of mechanisms there. So at any rate, population size is going to change. And these are the basic, well, very basic factors that uh, determine that. 
So this is what we do when we look at a population. We draw uh, an age, a population size and age uh, diagram. Okay? Um, because this is what influences, what determines what the future size of a population is going to be. So, for example, uh, this is for humans uh, here. This is reproductive age. The more individuals you have in this reproductive age, the more new individuals you're going to have. And this is usually the kind of thing you see in a growing population. Population is gradually increasing. More offspring are being produced than are dying in a given time period. Okay? Stable populations will look like that. Uh, countries and uh, countries do this uh, stability often by restricting not so much um, births, but they will restrict immigration and emigration. Australia is very difficult to get to immigrate to. Uh, many countries are. Uh, if uh, Canada restricts immigration, most countries restrict immigration. The United States does too. We have quotas for different countries. Only so many can come. Well, assuming they don't just come across the border, which is another issue. Uh, that's an issue in Europe right now too. Uh, but otherwise, if, if that didn't happen, you could you would restrict your, your population size by doing this. Uh, in Canada, I know that, uh, and I don't know what the exact age is, but I think if you're over 50 years old, you, they won't let you immigrate from Canada. You can go visit, obviously, but you can't go live there permanently. You're not going to be a productive member of society, I guess. Uh, you're going to be a drain on their medical care because they have uh, they have medical care for everybody. It's part of the tax structure that we pay, and everybody is entitled to medical care. And I think they you know feel that hey you know don't wait until you're about to have a lot of medical problems and then try to come to our country. Now younger and a lot of a lot of Americans are gone to Canada and become Canadian citizens. For a variety of reasons, and probably still do some. Uh, in many countries, they'll have some pretty uh, tight immigration. If you and by that tight, uh, if you want to go there and stay there and get a job, th there you have to have approvals in order to do that. Okay, we went to uh, this, and of course it's a small island, but we went to uh, the island of Saint Lucia uh, over the holidays. When you go there as a tourist, you know, as a, you know going in tourism. They stamp your passport, and it says specifically, not entitled to work, right on the stamp. Okay. You cannot get a job. You're not there to do that. You're there just to spend money, and they're happy with that. If you want to immigrate to stay there, then you would have to have advance approval, probably get a visa, uh, and you probably have to get a sponsor. I know my son lives in England. He's been there for about 18 years now, getting dual citizenship. When he first went there, his company had to sponsor him. And they had to verify that they wanted him there because he had knowledge that nobody else locally would have had. And uh, you know, and so he got his job there. He got his working papers. And then after so many years, he was granted citizenship. Okay, so they, there are there are a certain amount of, uh, of restrictions on that. Now, in the natural world, of course, there are no restrictions other than environmental resources. Okay, and then lastly, um, you have some populations that are actually declining. 
Um, and that's when the bulge in the population is more above the reproductive age. Um, and there are uh, a number of those. The other stable ones tend to be the Scandinavian countries, Norway, Sweden, relatively stable populations. Uh, you'll generally find that growing populations tend to be in poorer countries because, well, the, the medical care is sparse. Many children do not survive past the age of three or four. Uh, so, and there's no retirement plan. Retirement plan is your kids are gonna take care of you. All right, so given that a lot of the kids don't survive and that you're there, your future, people have a lot of children. So that means there's always gonna be a large number of, of young people in that population. So then when somebody comes in and starts talking about birth control, people are saying, well, wait a minute. That's my future. What do you mean you don't want to have as many children? If I don't have more children, I don't have a future. Nobody's going to take care of me when I get old. Okay. It's a difficult problem to work with. Okay. But these are basically the distribution of different age groups. Uh, and so the wider the reproductive base and the narrower the part above that, you're going to tend to see a growing population and then you know, the others are usually stable or and of course, no population out there is probably exactly stable. That's a relative term. Now, we also can measure uh, this survivorship. We have uh, life tables uh, and survivorship curves. Insurance companies work with this kind of stuff. Uh, now, this one happens to be for the, a SAM scorpion. All right, well, obviously, insurance company doesn't care about that, but you could be doing this to people, too. Um, Okay, so here's the average age. Uh, they start off at zero, they're just hatching, and they go all the way down. And the proportion that are surviving, well, obviously 100% are here. All of them are there. And then uh, by the end of the first month, only about 85% of them are still there, and then so on down. And about 60 months is about the maximum that they live. Now, this kind of data would have to be accumulated by somebody actually studying a population. Okay, so they would have to be sampling uh, in an area. It's obviously going to be somewhat approximate. They would have to mark them all, and then they would go back and, and look for them later. Okay, so that's one type of, of, this is what we mean by a life table. Now, an insurance company would have the same kind of table for us. Okay, exactly the same, except rather than in 72 months, we might be looking at 72 or 80 years, uh, but it's the same idea. What proportion are going to still be alive after a certain time period? And this is what determines uh, insurance rates. It's how they, you know, those people who uh, are trained is what they call actuaries, and this is what they do. They take this kind of data and they figure out, all right, we got X number of people insured, how much do we need to charge so that as, as they die off, because they will, uh, there'll still be enough to pay off the, the, the rest as well as make us, excuse me, a profit for the company. Okay. And that's why your insurance, insurance is based on risk. That's why most of you are paying more in car insurance than, than other people, because if you look at the statistics, younger people have more accidents than so they are a higher risk. 
insurance company has a higher likelihood of having to pay out. So they're going to charge you more. So that's something. Whether it's fair or not, it's another whole issue. But that's what they do. All right, so that's a life table. Okay, and you can do that for any species, uh, assuming that you can gather the data for it. Okay? Now, survivorship curves have really more to do with what is the pattern of this survivorship? Okay, and there are three types of survivorship curves. Type one, most of the offspring initially survive, and it's not until you get fairly far out that you start to see rapid death. This is for usually large vertebrates. Humans fit this pattern. You know, most children survive into their, you know, into their 30s, 40s, 50s, majority of people. Average age these days uh, for most, uh, it's, it's up in the 70s now, 74, 75 is the average age. Uh, it used to be that high, but, but it is now. Uh, and, uh, and things like animals like elephants, elephants and large vertebrates tend to have, they put a lot of maternal care in. They don't have very many offspring at a time, often only one or maybe two at a time. They put in a lot of effort into making sure they stay alive, that they survive. And then as they get larger, they generally live for a fairly long time. And then you'll see a, a, a die off toward the end. Okay. Type two are really exemplified by birds and small mammals. And basically, there is no particular, uh, basically, it's a standard uh, so many born and so many are, are dying at any given time. And it's a straight line. Obviously, it's never an exact straight line. But uh, for the birds out there, the, all the birds you see around right now, um, there's a survivorship curve for them. It's not, that's a straight line. And there's lots of things that contribute to that. Weather, cars sometimes. Or as happened at our house yesterday, my daughter was, oh, she was so distraught. She's 13. Uh, in our backyard, there were some little birds down on the ground, pecking through the leaves, looking for stuff. And a hawk swooped down and grabbed one of them and flew off. He was just, oh my god, you know. But hey, it's life. That's the way, the way things are. Uh, so the probability of uh, any one of them getting, you know, grabbed by a hawk doesn't change from some from year to year. Many of the birds, of course, don't live for very many years. Some of them do. A lot of them don't. Two or three years is pretty long lived for most of the small birds that you would have come to a feeder or something like that. Now crows, crows live for a long time. We have crows all the time. Smart little guys. Okay, so at any rate. And then you have a type three. And these are ones that lay thousands and thousands of eggs. They have no parental care. And obviously, most of those eggs never survive to be, most of them get eaten. And the young are eaten as fast as, they, you know, almost as they hatch. So their death rate is very high at the beginning. However, those who do survive uh, then have a, have a relatively longer life, okay? Uh, but not many of them. So the, the sand scorpion probably fits more of that type of curve than, some, than the others. Uh, and so these are just basic survivorship curves that we uh, did we show the video in here about the, uh, the sardines and the sharks? And, okay, I haven't done that. We'll have to get that one out too. Uh, yeah, sardines. Not many of them make it. That little tiny fish. No, not many of them can survive. Uh, large fish. Not many survive when they're young, but as they get older and older, they get big. 
and then how they're going to survive. So, three types of survivors in curves that are plants. Uh, this is another table. This is for plants. Um, okay, I uh, started out, these are days, so it's basically one year. Started off with 996. It would have been nice if it had been 1,000. And this is the number that died in a given time period. You can see that uh, there were no new, no new earth because they had to get big enough to flower before they ones, uh, but you can see that um, it dropped off very, very quickly. So that the number surviving divided by the number, uh, excuse me, number dying divided by the number surviving got very small. Uh, and then once they started flowering, then those numbers started to go back up as new seeds were produced and so on. So you can see lots of them died very young, and then there was a stability period. And they, they got old flowers, and many of them would die after the flowers. All right, so population growth is going to occur whenever births plus immigration exceeds deaths plus immigration. And we define the rate of increase uh, if we calculate it as, the, as R, R for rate, rate of increase. Um, and it really is the difference between births and deaths, immigration and immigration. Now, there's two basic types of, of curves that we see in populations. And of course, these are approximate. These are mathematical models. Right? When we talk about math models, we use models much more often than you are aware. This is going to be a mathematical model of the population growth. OK, so one of them is exponential growth. Okay, the, the population growth for some time period, it could be a week, it could be a month, it could be two years, whatever period you're looking at is determined by the reproduction per individual, R, times the population size. Okay. Now, uh, the assumption here is that resources are unlimited. Because if resources are going to limit this, then obviously the, the, it just doesn't function. Uh, and that there's no immigration or immigration, because that throws the numbers off. But exponential growth is a good approximation for many organisms. Uh, this is what it looks like. Uh, as you graph it, population size, reducing number of generations, it basically doubles each generation. Okay? Because it's the rate of increase times the number of individuals. The more individuals you have, the more your new ones you're going to get. Okay? Now, uh, so you get, it, it's, it keeps increasing, the doubling time keeps getting shorter. Uh, and as you get more and more individuals, they reproduce. Now, um, this the, the fallacy, of course, in this is that resources are almost never unlimited. Okay, But when a population gets to the point that they're growing as fast as this one is, usually what will happen is they will exceed the resources that are available, and then there'll be a die-off. And the population will crash back down to a small number, and then they'll go through the same thing again. And then crash. And go through the same thing again. Okay. Uh, this is common with, well, bacteria do this, follow this. Uh, in, many insects will follow this type of curve, uh, approximately at least. This is called exponential growth. Pretty straightforward. Now, we also have an idea of something called a carrying capacity. Uh, carrying capacity is 
should we be able to actually figure it out exactly, is the maximum number of individuals that our ecosystem can sustain indefinitely of a particular species. That's the carrying capacity. Right? In other words, if I get to that number, I can maintain that number forever, assuming no real changes to the ecosystem. Uh, so depending on the habitat, the particular uh, ecosystem. Uh, now, there are organisms where, as their population is growing up exponentially, as they approach the carrying capacity, resources are limited. Uh, we'll talk about density-dependent factors. And the population curve begins to level off. This is referred to as logistic growth. So this is what logistic growth looks like. Okay. Population growth rate gets greater and greater. And then when resources, they sense the resource limitations and growth rate begins to slow down. In, in theory, that would eventually level off at whatever the carrying capacity is. The reality is they probably exceed it and then they go back down under it and then exceed it. And then there's kind of a wavy line up there above and below and above and below. Uh, but this would be the number of individuals that this ecosystem could sustain for an indefinite time period, carrying capacity. Now, if the environment changes, the habitat changes, the resources change, the carrying capacity will change, either up or down, depending on, on what those changes are. So K in there, and that, it's the same uh, basic equation, only K and it there's a factor that indicates what the carrying capacity is. K is the carrying capacity. But you may or may not know really accurately. So this is an example of that. This is the initial carrying capacity. And then resources decline for some reason. Maybe there's a drought one year. Carrying capacity drops. Population will go down and then level off capacity. And the same thing would happen if the resource uh, available went up, only it would just go the other way. Now, here are the kinds of factors that limit population size. There are two basic types. Density dependent. Density dependent means that the effect of these factors depends on the size of the population you already have. They're density dependent. The more organisms you have, the more these factors will influence population size. Okay, and, and these are usually things like food, shelter, water, availability of water, those kinds of things that everybody in the population needs to have. And if they are limited, uh, then the more the population grows, the more limiting it become and that can regulate the population size. Okay, so food, water, shelter, those kinds of things. Uh, you see it out here, uh, or you may not have seen it much yet, but if you uh, go out where there's lots of robins, there's a lot of robins around now, uh, you hear them singing. And occasionally what you're going to see soon is, well, the reason they're singing is they're marking territories. They're territorial. If some of them have a place to build a nest, they can attract a mate, they can build their nest, they can raise their offspring, and they compete for territories that will give them the maximum ability to raise offspring. So they're going to be competing over those territories. Certain robins will get better territories than others. They will raise more offspring okay, to uh, successfully. Others will have to settle for a less optimum uh, territory, and maybe they won't raise quite as many. This is all natural selection. 
okay, that you talked about last, last semester. All right. But you may see on occasion two robins on the ground, they'll face each other and they'll fly up in the air and back down and up in the air. This is not mating, this is territorial display. Saying, it's my territory, you get to have count. And eventually one of them will leave. Okay, that's, so that's a territorial. That's a density dependent factor. Okay, there's only so many good nesting sites. There's more nest, more, there are fewer good nesting sites than there are robins, you know, or, or pairs of robins. And so that's a density dependent. It limits the population. Okay, uh, another, uh, the, the famous, I shouldn't say famous, but typically been used in science fiction. You know, the, uh, on a spaceship, there's only so much oxygen available. There's been an accident. A certain number of people are, survived the accident. There's some, enough. There's a certain amount of oxygen. They can still move, but it's going to take them longer to get to where they're going than they have oxygen to make it. Density dependent. If there were fewer of them, the remaining ones could make it. And you know, so uh, that's a scenario that uh, has been used in fiction. Uh, it's, it's basically the lifeboat scenario. Okay, so many people in a lifeboat. You got a certain amount of food and water. You're going to expect a certain number of days before there's any chance of being rescued. The fewer people we have in the boat, the longer the others are going to survive. And this uh, has actually played out for real on occasion. Okay. That's a density-dependent factor. Now, density-independent means. It doesn't make any difference if there's one or 500 of you, you're all going to die or you're all going to be affected equally. These are often disasters like a hurricane. Okay, a hurricane comes ashore in North Carolina, you've got wooded areas, there's squirrels in the trees. All those squirrels are affected equally. It doesn't matter how many of them there are. It's density independent. Okay. So density independent effects then, uh, it still limits population. But it has nothing to do with the number of individuals that were to start. Does that make a little bit of sense? Okay, what time is it? Okay, so as I mentioned, uh, if you overshoot the carrying capacity, um, you're going to get a crash. Uh, this is uh, St. Matthews Island, is off the coast, off of Alaska in the Bering Sea. And somebody thought it would be really great to introduce reindeer there uh, for, for uh, people. Um, you can see the population went up. They had no real predators there. And the population went way up and then it crashed. Because it was just, they ran out of, out of uh, environmental support. Okay. Could not sustain that many people without predators. That's one of the problems out there. Uh, predators are what make it possible to have to, to, to stabilize the population. Okay. Uh, sometimes we don't like that they do that. Uh, I know that Alaska right now is wrestling with a, in their legislature with a bill that would uh, get, shoot wolves and bears so that there would be more caribou and moose for people to hunt. Yeah, well, because they, they, the, a lot of money comes into the state from people coming from out of state to go hunting for moose and caribou. And so wolves and bears kill them. So therefore, if we have fewer wolves and bears, we have more caribou and moose, and therefore we make more money. 
And it's become an issue because their oil royalty money is declining right now. Price of oil's dropped like a lot. They're not getting as much money. They're having problems with their budget. They're thinking, all right, how can we increase our income? That would be one way. Okay, eliminate some of the predators. And up there, what they do when they hunt these, they hunt them by air. They hunt them from, from, from airplanes. Caribou? Yep. No, not caribou. Bears and wolves. They'll, they'll hunt them from the air. They'll just shoot them and leave them. So how many, like, how many generations did it take to just start to see the effect of that? Like, you see uh, probably just a couple generations. Because uh, with the caribou and the moose, it's most often the young that are, that are killed by these. Although, the other thing is that they don't take into account is that often it's old and sick ones that are killed. So, you know, you get them out of there and leave them, you know, leave resources for the younger ones. It's, it's really, uh, some people are, are for it, other people say this is about the worst idea that they've had. This depends on your view of, of the ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's not just limited to to the the caribou and the and the, and the deer and that and the uh, deer. Not so much in Alaska. There are a lot of deer up there. Uh, too cold. But moose and caribou. Yes, it would certainly because those animals don't eat only caribou and and, and moose. They are eating bears. Eat anything. Well, that, then there's an impact there. Now, they're planning to not allow that to happen by bringing in out-of-state hunters who will pay to kill them. That's, that's the, the plot, the, the approach. Okay. So, uh, but what they're doing is they're playing with the carrying capacity, and they're, they're playing with the predator-prey relationship. Uh, this is uh, uh, the one I was mentioning earlier. This is the lynx, Canadian lynx. Beautiful little, beautiful animals. Got paws the size of snowshoes, just about because they're they're a winter. They hunt in the winter. Their primary prey are snowshoe hares, uh, which of course are also white in the winter. And this is a graph of the populations, approximate populations, from 1845 on up to 19. Was it 25? Yeah, 35. Uh, and you can see that typical uh, up and down. Prey species goes up. Predators go up, prey species go down, predator species go down, and bow up and down, and up and down. This is, it's nice here, they have almost 100 years worth of data that shows that. Now, human populations. Uh, well, definitely clump distribution to a large degree. Uh, just leave that we'll pick up here next time. This is, uh, this is a somewhat, uh, this is all guesswork down here. But we certainly know the number of individuals are here now. I mean, now this only goes up through the year 2000. Uh, the number of individuals being born every every minute. I think it was the Smithsonian. They had a clock you could look at, and they kept ticking off. Now, not that they're actually measuring births, but it's an estimate of the number of births that are occurring every minute. Just watch that clock. Uh, and so here's the, the basic population curve as best we can look at it now. It looks like an exponential curve. So the two questions are, where is the carrying capacity of the planet, and how close is it? 
I mean, obviously the population is still going up rapidly. Uh, when are we going to reach that carrying capacity and what's going to happen then? We don't exactly know where it is. We will find out eventually. This, this information is taken by the census? Well, the census plus information from around the world, which is not just the United States. It, so there is a certain amount of guessing involved in this. So where we're going, who knows? But it's, it's pretty, yeah, well, it's pretty clear that it's an exponential curve. And at some point, we will find the carrying capacity. Now, in the past, Every time there's been, uh, uh, I'm back in the, um, let's see, when was it, uh, eight, early 1800s, they were, there was a guy by the name of Malthus, I think you might have mentioned him when you talked about uh, evolution, about natural selection, uh, who said that there wasn't going to be enough farmland in, in England to, to grow enough food for the people that were in England. Well, that didn't happen because they started importing food from other countries, and so the population continued to grow. Technology has always allowed us to produce more food, uh, but at what point will that not be able to continue? We don't know. We honestly don't know. So the future is, I wouldn't say it's grim, but it's uncertain. But then, so is life, so. Life is uncertain. You can it first. Okay, so we'll stop here. Uh, Can we do the attendance? Oh. I'll set it down over here. Yeah, I do have one. Thanks for reminding me.